faithfulness. And, and then we got set back a week uh, because of the 4th of July service. And then I jumped up another week. So we are two fruits ahead this week. But today we're going to be talking about faithfulness. So if you want to turn uh, to our key scripture, which is Galatians 5.22, you can turn there. And uh, if you want to also, we're going to end up in Exodus chapter 20. So if you want to hold the finger in the Old Testament, I'm, I'm going to pray. We're going to pray for uh, the bells, and we're going to pray for uh, the Devilliers, and then we're going to pray for God to speak to us. So uh, if you would, join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace to this church, Lord. God, we, we declare this morning that, that we are your body, your temple, Lord. Father, that, that, and, and we ask this morning that, that Jesus Christ would be the head, guiding and directing the body for his purposes and his will, Lord. And God, we, we pray this morning for, uh, the Bell family and Destiny Church, Lord, who have lost, uh, Miss Jody Bell. Lord, we pray for grace, God. We pray for grace to Dana and her family, Lord. We pray that your, your, your grace and your mercy would be sufficient for them, Lord. We pray that, that you would be a rock on which they stand, their refuge and their strength, O oh God. Lord, that they would run to you in this time of trouble, Lord. Father, we, we, we pray that you would uh, help them to mourn well, Lord God. And, and, and with the case of the, of the drunk driver, Lord, we pray against bitterness and anger and unforgiveness in the heart of the family, Lord. And God, we pray that, that for all involved, that, that you would not only be merciful and gracious in the morning, but that you would use this tragedy for good in their lives, Lord. That you would drive the friends and the family to the Lord Jesus Christ uh, through this loss, Lord. And, and we know it. We know it from your word, God, that for your people, you work all things for good. And so, Lord, we, we just pray that that promise would comfort uh, Matt Bell and his brothers now, Lord. We pray that that promise would comfort Dana and her family. And Lord, we thank you that you are the great rock on which we stand, Lord, that if we build our house on the rock, it will stand. And so, Lord, we pray that for every person involved, Lord God, that is a believer, and we pray that you would use this as a, uh, as a means to open the eyes of the hearts of unbelieving friends and family to come to know Jesus. And Father, we pray for, for this word this morning that you have for us. God, we pray that uh, you would open the eyes of our hearts to see. God, that you would give us ears to hear this morning what you have to say. We pray that you would give us hearts that are prepared to receive, O oh Lord. That, that we would not be shallow hearts or busy hearts, Lord God, but that you would make our hearts good, fertile soil to receive the word of God. And Lord, we pray that, that this morning that your church would be built on the rock that is your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So let's read the passage. Uh, Galatians 5.22. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. 
So, like I said, over the past several Sundays, we've been talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Like Pastor Sam says, it's, it's not, uh, you know, fruits, it's fruit. It's a cluster. These fruits grow together in the lives of born-again believers. And today, we're going to study faithfulness. And I wanted to start with kind of framing out what faithfulness is. How many of you know sometimes when we hear Bible words over and over again, they lose their meaning? Does that happen to anybody? And sometimes if, if we're not careful, we've just heard a word so many times that it loses its meaning. And so let's, let's stay there for about two minutes. Uh, in short, faithfulness is keeping God's commandments gladly. Now I say gladly... Because if we keep God's commandments grudgingly, that's not faithfulness. Okay? That's a very important thing. Uh, Isaiah 64, 5 says, God welcomes those who gladly do good. 1 John 5, 3 says, Loving God means keeping His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. So, in other words, if, if in our serving the Lord, if it's constantly just this burden and this begrudgment where we, I have to go to church and I have to read my Bible and I have to pray and it's such a burden, that's not faithfulness. Faithfulness is serving and obeying God gladly. See, God is not only concerned that we obey Him, but that we obey Him gladly out of love for Him. That's faithfulness. So, with faithfulness defined as keeping God's commands gladly, what I want to do today is I want to walk through uh, the Ten Commandments and let them teach us what faithfulness is. Because how many, how many know that the Ten Commandments is God's law kind of pushed down and distilled down into, into these, these ten awesome statements of God to define what He expects of His people? So first, before we do that, Jesus, Jesus did us a solid one. He, he took those Ten Commandments and He, he crushed them down even more in, into what uh, many call the two great commandments. Okay, so in, in Matthew 22, you're all familiar with this. Uh, when asked what the most important commandment in the law of Moses is, Jesus said this in Matthew 22:37. He said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Now, this is a radical, this is a radical statement by Jesus. Um, you know, all that God requires as set forth in the Old Testament. So you look at the book, right? It's like three-fourths of the book, right? Like this thick with small print. Uh, all that God requires of believers as set forth in the Old Testament is summed up in these two great, yet very simple, commandments. In fact, these commandments are so simple 
that they're the very first two theological principles that I teach my kids. And I've learned, I've been kind of trial and error in it a little bit. And this just happened kind of by accident. But uh, I've, I've learned at about two years old, they can kind of start getting stuff a little bit. And so, uh, you know, we put it this way. Love God most. Love others like yourself. And maybe Ruth... You can walk up to her after church, maybe, you know, depending on what kind of mood she's in. And uh, you can say, hey, Mabry, what are the two great commandments? And usually she says the second one first. She says, love others like yourself. And I say, okay, what's the first one? Love God most. Very simple. You know, very, uh, on the surface, very simple. Yet we all know that these two great commandments, those simple in statement are loaded with complexity in this fallen world that we live in, right? And that's, that's Jesus in general. You know, his teachings are so simple, but they are incredibly deep and loaded with, uh, with just principle and application and doctrine and theology. That's just Jesus, the way he spoke. Only the Son of God. You know, no one speaks like this man, they said, and no one ever has and no one ever will. So if we look at the Ten Commandments, then they stand as kind of a detailed breakdown of Jesus' two great commandments. They, they, they flesh out those two, love God most, love others like yourself. They flesh those things out a little more uh, detailed for us. So the first four commandments address loving God supremely, loving God more than anything else in this world or in this life. And the last six commandments address how we love our neighbors as ourselves. So let's walk briefly through the Ten Commandments. And um, I'm not going to actually read them. If you want to go to Exodus 20 and kind of follow along, I'm going to go right in the same order. And um, I'm going to put up on the screen kind of a, a uh, paraphrase of, of each commandment based off of the teachings of the New Testament the new covenant, the gospel, how the gospel interprets each commandment. I'm going to kind of put up a summary up there. Um, I actually uh, got this from a book that I'm reading. It's not original with me, but it's been very helpful to me. Hopefully it will be helpful to know and to trust God as the only true and living God. Second commandment, we are to have no idols. We must avoid all idolatry and not worship God improperly. Now these first two commandments teach us to love God most. That's what they're pointing to. They're pointing to, it's like, a, it's like the spearhead of the arrow saying, love God more than anything. See, loving God more than anything else is our highest purpose in life. God created us in his image to know him and to love him and to live with him and to glorify him. That's what we were made to do. That's what he created us for. You know, yes, we, we are, you know, we have jobs and we have children and we have responsibilities and we can find joy in those things and glorify him in those things. But at the deepest basis root, you were made for the glory of God. That's what we're made for. That's what we're here for. 
Our highest priority in faithfulness is to love God supremely. He's to be our exclusive object of worship. When we love other people or things more than we love God, what's that called? It's called idolatry, right? When we love things more than God. Idolatry, simply put, is trusting in created things like people, money, careers, or possessions, rather than trusting in the Creator. So trusting in created things rather than the Creator, God, for our hope and our happiness, our significance, and our security. That's idolatry. When we look to other things besides God, Idolatry can also be worshiping God according to our own conception of God and not as he has revealed himself in Scripture. Let me give you two very prevalent examples of that. If I say to myself, okay, if I do A, B, C for God, then I believe that he is obligated to make me wealthy and give me a comfortable life. That's a myth that's, that's a heresy called the prosperity gospel right now. And there's so many people that, 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 that are preaching and pumping and peddling that if we come to God, if we come to Christ, that all of our problems are gone and our life will be easy. And that is not the Bible. Okay, so if I say those things, then, then, then I'm projecting on God an image that is not his image. I'm projecting on God something that he is not. Okay, let me give you another example. If I say to myself, okay, I don't believe that God would ever bring justice to sin by condemning a sinner to hell, then I am placing on God an image that is not who he has revealed himself to be in Scripture. If I believe these things, I've created my own God. I've created an idol an image that is not the one true and living God. I've created a God that I prefer to the one God who truly is. Does that make sense? And so it's very important that we be careful to know God in Scripture because the first and second commandments command us to have God at the top of our affections, not for what we think He should be, or what we think that he can do for us, but for who he is. It's very important. That's what the first two commandments point us to. So we have to ask ourselves, am I being faithful? Faithful, right? Fruit of the Spirit. Am I being faithful to love God more than anything else for who he is? The third commandment, says that we must not use God's name improperly. We must treat God's name with fear and reverence, honoring also his word and his works. Now, God's name describes his character. It describes the essence of his being, the essence of who he is. That's why when when he was talking to Moses, he told Moses, my name is I am. That's kind of weird, right? That's an odd verb, uh, noun mixture that we just don't use, right? But he, he, when Moses 
asked to see him and asked for his name, he said, I am. And I remember Jesus in the garden, one of my, one of my favorite passages in the Bible that shows the glory of the Lord. Uh, you know, the, the, the mob is coming to arrest him and, and they've got their swords and their clubs. When you think about it, it's really pretty ridiculous. Uh, they're coming to, to arrest the Lord of glory. And, and they say, where is he? Where is he? You know, Judas has come and kissed him. And, and uh, where's, where's Jesus, the one who calls himself the Messiah? And he said, I am he. And the Bible says that they fell prostrate on the ground. Whew, he is. I am, right? And in other words, what God is saying, my name is that I am self-existent and I am eternal. So to not misuse the name of God doesn't merely mean not to use certain words, but it means that when we speak of God, whether through words or through our life, we are to fully and we are to fully honor and respect who He is through our words and through our life. We're to reverence and, and, and approach Him fearfully. So we have to ask ourselves, am I being faithful to honor God's name? The fourth commandment says that we are to remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. Now, I've been wrestling with this because this is probably the most non-contemporary, maybe controversial uh, commandment of the Ten Commandments, right? We know we're supposed to love God the most. We know that we're not supposed to kill people or steal their stuff and, and all these things. But what in the world does keeping the Sabbath mean for us today? Uh, let's delve into that a little bit. We know that after the resurrection of Jesus, the Sabbath was moved from Saturday to Sunday. I don't know if you all know that, but uh, traditionally the Jews uh, kept the Sabbath on Saturday. After Christ rose from the dead and the church was born, uh, they moved they moved Sabbath to from Saturday to Sunday, and they called it the Lord's Day in honor of Christ. Uh, Jesus warned, Jesus taught a lot about the Sabbath. Well, not a lot, a little, but he did teach on it. Jesus warned that we should not be legalistic about the Sabbath because it was made for the good of people. People were not made to serve the Sabbath. That's what he said. God made the Sabbath for, for man, not man for the Sabbath. Um, he didn't make it to be a burden upon us as the Pharisees tried to make it a, a burden upon the people. It is meant to be a day when we not only rest our bodies, but we, we rest our minds and souls from the cares of this life and set our thoughts on God's eternal kingdom. Jesus said that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. That means what he was saying is, he's saying, you Pharisees got all these ideas about what this is and all this legalism, but what I say is what the Sabbath is. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And he said that we are not sinning. You know, they, they, they said that if, if you do any type of work, including helping others or meeting your own needs, then you're sinning. It's what, what the legalism of the Pharisees. But Jesus showed us and taught us that we're not sinning if we meet our own needs, and especially if we do good for others. He said, he told them, you know, when he healed the man with the crippled hand, he said, is the Sabbath a day for doing evil 
uh, for doing good. And then he turned to the man and he said, stretch forth your hand. And he was healed. And so God wants us to do good to others on the Sabbath. So in short, this is what the Sabbath day is for us. That on one day a week, preferably and traditionally on Sundays. Why Sundays? Because that's the day when our church gathers together. And, and so uh, I'm going to show you in a second. You'll see in the next part of the statement why it's important for the gathering. Uh, that on one day a week, preferably and traditionally on Sundays, we spend time in public and private worship, rest from routine employment, serve the Lord and others, and thus anticipate the eternal Sabbath. Now, what do I mean by the eternal Sabbath? What I mean by that is, is that the Sabbath points, like, like many things in the Bible, the Sabbath points forward to something. And we understand that in this life, what did Jesus say? You will have difficulty. You'll have tribulation. Right? And so we understand that even though the work of God is finished in us, we are justified as believers in Christ. We will not have our rest until we're on the other side, right? Until we go to be with the Lord, uh, we won't have rest in this life as Christians, right? And so the Sabbath is a day where we, we, we take our minds off of the things of this world and we anticipate, we look forward to the future grace of God. That's the purpose of it, I think. Now, there's all kinds of complexities in the way that I just defined Sabbath. So we need to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to define what Sabbath means in my life. And I want to encourage you to do that. Man, I'm wrestling with this right now. What, what, is, what is God calling me to do in order to be faithful to this fourth commandment. And I want to encourage you to wrestle with it too and figure out by the leading of the Holy Spirit what does keeping the Sabbath mean in my life? So I'm sorry, I have no answers for you right now. <laughs> uh, but we have to ask ourselves, am I being faithful to keep the Sabbath? Am I being faithful to this commandment? The fifth commandment says that we are to honor our father and our mother. Now, this means to love and honor our father and mother, submitting to their godly discipline and direction. Now, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear for children. He says, children, obey your parents. Uh, But we're not children anymore, right? Uh, And so, what does this mean for us? I think it means this. As adults, we should respect and listen to our parents. We should give them our ear, and especially when they come to us with godly advice. You heard, you heard that word in, in the description, submitting to their godly discipline and instruction. And you may not have godly parents. You may have very dishonorable parents. But what I'm telling you here is, is that the Bible says, the Bible commands us to honor our father and our mother. But there's something else. The gospel reminds us of something greater at work here. Remember I said the the Bible points to things, right? It points to stuff. And, And the gospel reminds us that God is our Father. It reminds us that we are brought into His family by grace. And He is our primary source of love and security 
and relationship. All those things that we seek in an earthly father and mother are perfectly fulfilled in God. So when we look to God as our primary source of love, as our primary source of security, as our primary source of affirmation, what happens is is that whether we have really good or really bad parents, we're able to love them well. Because we're not looking to our parents to provide something that we can only find in God. Does that make sense? So we look to Him, we find our affirmation, we find our security well in Him, and we're able to love our parents well, whether they're good or whether they're bad. The sixth commandment says that we must not murder. It teaches us that we are not to hurt or hate or be hostile towards our neighbor, but be patient and peaceful pursuing even our enemies with love. Now, you know, uh, a, lot of, a lot of people uh, think, man, the sixth and seventh commandment, you know, don't murder, don't commit adultery. I'm pretty good on those, you know. Uh, on, and on the surface, we are, but Jesus did something. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus came and he, he redefined a lot, of, a lot of the Old Testament, but specifically he redefined what these two commandments actually mean. Or I shouldn't say redefined, he revealed to us what they actually mean. So, um, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught us that murder is not physically killing someone, but also having hatred or bitterness or unforgiveness towards someone. Um, man, you know, the other day, I, I, how many of you know that Facebook and internet can really get under your skin? People on Facebook and internet can really get under your skin. And I am resolved to, to not, even if I see something so, so blatantly wrong and off, I'm resolved not to involve myself in, in political or religious talk on Facebook because for one, um, you can't have a meaningful conversation on there. It's not possible. You can't express yourself right on Facebook and have the proper give and take of topics like uh, politics and religion and doctrine and theology on Facebook. But I saw something the other day, a theological post of a guy that I didn't even know that well. And I, I, I said something on it, and before I knew it, there was this jerkhead saying mean things to me and making me mad. And, and then I said, I said, okay, I'm going to back away, and I'm not going to engage in this anymore because it's getting me all stirred up and angry at this guy that I don't even know. <laughs> and so I, I went away, and you know I let it rest. I didn't think about it for a couple of weeks, and then the other day... Uh, I just had this great idea. I was like, I'm just going to go back and see. I'm just going to go back and see what's been going on on that, on that thread, you know. And so I went, hoping that maybe I had convinced this man. Maybe the Holy Spirit had changed his heart. And I went back, and guess what? He was still a jerk face. <laughs> and so for about a day, I'm waking up. 
I woke up, I woke up the next thing, and the next day, and you know what the first thing that I thought about was? It wasn't, oh God, you're so good. I glorify your name. I woke up thinking about how I was going to retort and how I was going to top with bitterness and anger over something so stupid. And, and I didn't put that in here. I don't know why I'm talking about it, but, but listen, the point is, is that God's looking at our hearts. And when he looks at our hearts and he sees anger and bitterness and unforgiveness in our heart, not in our actions, Jesus says that you are guilty. We are guilty as a murderer. That's what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 5. Read it. So that's pretty heavy. Uh, Jesus went on to instruct us to love and to pray for our enemies. He said, he said, no, no, no. It's no good if you just love people who love you. Everybody does that. He said, if you want to be like your father in heaven, you pursue the good of your enemies. Not in lip service, but in your heart. He told his disciples that because we have been forgiven so much by a holy God, we sinners must, not you ought to, we must forgive others. In fact, I want you to hear this, because this is heavy statements from the Lord. He said um, that if we forgive those who sin against us, then God will forgive our sins. But if we don't forgive those who sin against us, God will not forgive our sins. That's heavy. That's Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, read it, I think, or 6, Sermon on the Mount. Um, so you see, the point, is, the point isn't that if I'm a believer and I'm mad at somebody, I'm going to go to hell, I'm going to lose my salvation. That's not the point, right? The Bible says that God will, begin, will finish the good work that he began in you, that if you are in Christ, that no one can pluck you out of his hand, that you are secure. You know, uh, Romans, Romans 8, 28, whom he foreknew, he called, and whom he called, he justified, and whom he justified, he brought to glory. It's as sure as done in your life if you're a believer in Christ. But the point here is, is that if you are a believer, forgiveness and radical love is is in the very fabric of who we are. It's the very fabric of being a believer. And the Lord commands us to do that. So in light of the gospel... The sixth commandment says we ought to radically love others, especially our enemies. Seventh commandment says that we must not commit adultery. We are to abstain from sexual immorality and live purely and faithfully, whether in marriage or in single life, avoiding all impure actions, looks, Words, thoughts, and desires, and whatever might lead to them. Now, Jesus did the same thing with this one. He re, now, well, redefines the wrong word. He, he showed us what that really means in the Sermon on the Mount. He showed us that not only is adultery fornication outside of the covenant of marriage, 
It's more than that. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. Uh, where am I? He, he defined adultery as, as looking, looking with lust in our hearts. That's how he, he defined it. That's how he revealed this commandment in light of the gospel. So in, in the light of the gospel, the seventh commandment says that we must be faithful to our wife or our husband and that we must recognize sexuality as a beautiful and exclusive gift from God. Therefore, if we're in a marriage relationship, we ought to recognize that it is a covenant commitment between a man and a woman. And what does covenant mean? Covenant means exclusive and lifelong, unending commitment. And if, if you're single, we have to guard our hearts for purity and set guardrails and accountability against fornication. We've got to step up in this area, I think. And, and when I was preparing this, God gave me a word especially for the men. So I just want to talk to the guys right now. And ladies, you can listen. And this is a way that you can pray for us. But I just want to tell you guys is that we have got to stop sinning by looking. We've got to stop sinning by looking with our eyes. In our culture, there's temptation to sin with the eyes and then the mind everywhere. You can't turn on your TV. You can't go out into public without that temptation in your face, men and ladies. But I understand that this is a, a particular difficulty for men. Let's go back to Jesus. Well, no, let, let, me, let me back up. I want to be real with y'all. This is, this is, this is a, a slap you in the face statement, but I want to be real with you. Taking into consideration the words of Jesus, I want to tell you that staring at a woman walking down the hall at work or on the TV or at the mall or wherever you are with lust is just as much of a sin against your wife and against God as climbing into bed with somebody. That's reality. God isn't looking at our actions. He's looking at our hearts. We got to understand that. Jesus said that if your eye causes you to sin, then you should gouge it out and throw it away, for it is better for us to lose one part of our body than for our whole body to be thrown into hell. Serious. This is serious. And what's he saying? He's not saying that we should make ourselves blind. What he's saying is we've got to get radical about killing sin. We've got to get radical about what we do with our eyes and with our hearts. We've got to radically come against sin. And I want to say to everybody this morning, God put this heavy on my heart, that pornography is a tool of Satan to destroy your life. Satan created that as a particular tool to destroy your life, to kill your soul, to make you numb to God. And I urge you and I plead with you that if you are involved with pornography, to throw yourself 
at the feet of the Lord Jesus and ask him to deliver you and change your heart so that you hate that stuff because it is a weapon of the devil to destroy your soul. We have to get radical about protecting ourselves and our children from this tool of the enemy. We have to get radical. It has no place in our lives. So I urge you all, but especially the men, whether it be pornography or looking or thinking too much about a woman who is not your wife to radically kill sin in your life. Amen? Eighth commandment. It says that we must not steal. We should never take without permission that which belongs to someone else, nor withhold any good from someone whom we might benefit. Now the gospel raises the bar on this one as well. The gospel raises the bar and it it goes beyond just taking which is not ours. It teaches that not only should we not take what is not ours, but that we are called by our Lord to be radically generous. That we are to give and to give and to give of ourselves. Jesus said, if you want to be first in the kingdom of God, become the servant of all. Make yourself low. The least will be the greatest, he said, in the kingdom of heaven. Those who make themselves humble and low like a child will be first in the kingdom of God. And so we give of ourselves, we give of our resources radically according to the Lord Jesus. The ninth commandment says that we must not testify falsely against our neighbor. We should not lie or deceive, but speak the truth in love. Now James 3.8, James talks a lot about the tongue, right? Uh, but in, in, you should read the whole chapter, James 3. But in James 3.8, He says that the tongue is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. The ninth commandment is aimed in part at bridling our tongue. It's aimed at bringing our tongue into submission to the Lord. Paul says in Ephesians 4.15 that not only should we speak the truth, but we should speak the truth in what? Anybody know? Speak the truth in love. Right? So I want to tell you something, okay? If you're right, it's good to be right, right? If you're right, that does not give you the right to be arrogant or rude. Especially on Facebook. (laughs) No, I should say especially face-to-face in real life. It does not give us the right to be arrogant or rude when we find that we're right or when we believe that we're right. We're commanded to speak the truth in love. And what does that mean? That means that when I speak the truth, I don't seek to condescend towards someone. I don't seek to win the argument. I don't seek to make myself look better and them look less. I seek after their best good. I speak the truth in love. I speak the truth in a way that builds them up and doesn't tear them down. So we put off lying. As believers, we speak the truth and we do it humbly 
and graciously. The Tenth Commandment says that we must not covet. We must be content, not envying anyone or resenting what God has given them or us. I'll give you a couple of scriptures. 1 Timothy 6.6 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Philippians 4.11-13, Paul says, For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. So you see, we do more than sin against our fellow man when we covet his car or his wife or his wealth. When we covet, when we get down to the root of covetousness, What we're actually saying is that God has not apportioned his creation properly because he has not given me all that I desire. So covetousness isn't just a sin against man. It's an accusation against the sovereign Lord through whom all things pass. Through his hands, all things pass. To not covet is to not be envious or resentful towards others because of what they have and to be content that God has and will give us all that we need. So we have to ask ourselves, in light of the 5th through 10th commandments, am I being faithful to love my neighbor like I love myself, as defined in these commandments? The fearful concept that we see in the gospel is that our Lord Jesus came to interpret the law He didn't just rehearse the law. He came to interpret the law for us new covenant believers. And he shows that an evil desire is as damnable as an evil deed. And that's a little terrifying, right? Season our heart. You know, another thing I love about the Gospels is is that, you know, it'll it'll show situations where where people are are plotting against Jesus and trying to trap him. And and they're they're kind of they're thinking these things in their head about how they're going to get him, and and it says, and knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, well, "It's kind of terrifying, <laughs> you know." He knows our hearts; he sees inside of us. He see we're not fooling Jesus. You're not fooling Jesus. He sees inside, you know. The problem is that our hearts do not naturally love God above all things and love others like ourselves. Our hearts naturally want to serve who? Me. My heart wants to serve me. Wants to put me forward. Wants to work for my good. Wants me to be supreme. Not God. So faithfulness, like the other fruits of the Spirit, requires a change in our heart. Okay? All the fruits of the Spirit require this. Faithfulness is what we're talking about. If we're going to be faithful to God, if we're going to be faithful to His law and His commandments, we need a changed heart. 
we will never be faithful to God until he changes our hearts. But there's good news, right? I've been beating on you guys a little bit, beating on me. Let's get to the good news. For all who are born again and believe in Jesus, God is in the process of changing our heart. Amen? God's doing something. You know, Hebrews says that he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So it's finished in your life, right? If you're a believer in Christ, if you've been born again, it's finished. You are uh, solidly in the hand of the Lord. But there's still a work to be done. He's perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So God's doing something. And sanctification is simply God bringing us gladly into conformance to his commandments, right? That's what sanctification is. So it's, that's the promise of the new covenant. That is the gospel. That's the gospel. That God is doing something in your life. He is sanctifying you. So I want to show you, uh, you know, in, 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 a, in the prophets, in the books of the prophets, there's some awesome revelation into the new covenant that God is pointing forward to back then that shows us what God is doing in our lives. So I just want to show you a couple of those passages so that we have something really solid to stand on. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, let's stop here. Pause, time out. You know, the immediate thought is, well, I'm not a Jew. He's talking to Israel. He's talking to um, Judah. That's who he says that this new covenant is with. Well, we know and we understand from Romans 9 through 11 that in the new covenant, not all Jews are ethnic Jews, right? Paul said that when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, when we have faith in him and are born again, that we are grafted in to Israel and that all the new covenant promises of God to Israel now apply to us, the true Israel, the new Israel, the people of God. So read it that way. And read Romans 9 through 11 if, if that is foreign to you. So he says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I, I want you to notice as we read these, the work that God is doing in our lives. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. And I, God, I will give you a new heart. There's the changed heart. I will give you a new heart 
and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out the stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so, so that, here's the, here's the purpose of the spirit, so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. Jeremiah 32, 38 through 40, they will be my people and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one purpose to worship me forever for their own good and for the good of all their descendants. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good for them. I will put a desire in their hearts to worship me and they will never leave me. Ezekiel eleven nineteen through 20. Last one. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. You see, faithfulness, like all the fruits of the Spirit, like every single one of them, isn't my work. The fruit of the Spirit is not our work. The fruit of the Spirit is God's work in our lives. It's God working through us. And I want to tell you guys, this is good news. Because how many of you want to bet on yourself to be faithful to God's commandments? I sure don't. I sure don't. But how many of you know that it's good news that the sovereign God of the universe promises that He will write His Word on our heart, that He will keep us, that He will change us, that He will bring us into happy and glad and joyful conformance to His will and to His commandments. For born-again believers, faithfulness does not require... And this was what happened in the Old Covenant. This is why it failed. Faithfulness does not require that we obey our own self-will. In the New Covenant, God miraculously changes our hearts so that we love to obey His commandments. It's a changed heart. It's a change inside of us. And I want you to see this. Old Covenant, before you were saved, you can look back and probably remember this if you were religious. I was. I call that the worst kind of Christian, the religious, or the worst kind of unbeliever, the religious unbeliever. You know, we're, we're, we're bound in legalism and, 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 and it's for nothing, but, um, I've lost myself. Uh, okay, yeah. Uh, so outside of Christ, a religious person is someone trying and striving and failing over and over again to keep an external set of rules with a heart that prefers sin over obedience. Okay, that's the old covenant. That's why it failed. That's why um, even now the remnants of that is what causes us to fail, right? But the new covenant is a changed heart that loves the commands of God. So I want you to get this. When God saved you, He didn't just renew His commitment for you to keep an external set of rules. 
He changed your heart on the inside. He began to work in you sanctification and purity and righteousness so that instead of obeying an external set of rules begrudgingly, all of a sudden a love to obey and to follow Christ works itself from the inside out. That's the difference. That's the new covenant. But we got to remember something. That even though faithfulness is the work of the Spirit on the inside of us, it's God's work that doesn't exclude us from having to participate in the work, right? Let me read you Scripture. 1 Corinthians 15.10 But whatever I am now... It is all because God poured out His special favor on me, and not without results. Now listen to what he says. For I have worked harder than any of the other apostles. Yet it was not I, but God who was working through me by His grace. So faithfulness is kind of mysterious. It's, it's kind of something that I don't fully understand. Really, God working the process of sanctification in our lives in general. Uh, you know, we work, right? You had to come here today, right? I had to get on my computer and read scriptures and type on my computer and show up here to be able to speak to you today. We have to do things in order to be obedient to God, but it is Him working in us. It's a little mysterious, We work, but God works in us. God does the work, but that does not free us from the need to do the work, right? Let me give you an example, a picture that God gives us. We're kind of like the disciples. Remember remember after Jesus fed the 5,000 and he he told them, you go across the lake, um, you go across the lake, and I'm going to um, send the people away. And then he, he went to pray. And so um, they get on the water, and the storm comes, right? And they're, they're toiling, and they're rowing. We're like them. You know, we're in the storm. We're working hard. We're paddling. We're rowing. We're fighting against the winds and the currents of this world. But all the while... We look to Jesus. We look to Jesus. We call out to Jesus, praying, hoping, knowing that he will step into our boat and calm the storm. Amen. You see that picture? Closing exhortation. Many of us, including myself, look at the Ten Commandments. And we see, as defined by Jesus, as interpreted by Jesus, we see just how miserably we fail again and again and again. And I want, I want to tell you something, that if, if you're thinking that's not me, you need to step into reality, okay? Because we are fallen, flawed, broken people, and we fail at keeping these commandments again and again. But I want to tell you something. The fact that the law and the commandments show you how miserable of a failure you are, we are. Let me say we. <laughs> it shows us how miserable of a failure we are. It's not to discourage us. 
The fact that, that we fail miserably at the law is meant by God to drive us to the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. We need Him. The hymn says, I need you every hour. I need you every hour in joy and in pain. I need you, I need you, I need you. And God's not trying to beat us into the ground. God is trying to drive us to the foot of the one who has mercy and power and grace and who is sufficient to sanctify your soul. So I want to exhort you this morning to throw yourself to the foot of the cross of Jesus. Pray that He would change your heart according to His new covenant with His people. Ask Him to work this fruit of the Spirit to be faithful to His commandments in your life. Commit yourself to His Word and to prayer and to serving in this church. Believe on the Lord Jesus for a changed heart and for the fruits of the Spirit in your life. And I added this this morning, and I believe that it's, it's God's um, picture to, what, to us of what could be. As you rely on Jesus, moment by moment, day by day, and year by year, and in the power of the Spirit, say no to sin and gladly submit to God's commandments. One day, Lord willing, you and I will be able to look back proudly and humbly at 20, 30, 40 years, and we can say, I was faithful to God. I was faithful to my wife. I was faithful to my husband. I was faithful to my friends. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray that one day we can look back and say that. Amen? Let's pray. You can stand if you like. We've been sitting for a long time. Heavenly Father, we we love you, God. We thank you that it's all you, Lord, that you, oh God, are the one that saves us, and you are the one that sanctifies us, Lord, and you are the one that brings us to glory. God, I pray that no one would leave discouraged this morning, Lord. But Father God, that that each and every one of us would be driven to you as our refuge and our strength. That each and every one of us would be driven to the Lord Jesus. Realize our complete insufficiency. But that in Him, that in our weakness, He is strong. That His grace is sufficient for us to make us faithful people, Lord. And God, I pray that if if there's anyone here, Lord, who has no understanding of this this internal change of heart, if there's anyone in here who, who has never experienced from the inside out a desire to please and follow God, Lord, I pray that you would save their soul now, Lord, that they would throw themselves completely on you for salvation and grace And I just want to speak to you right now. If that's you, just say yes to Jesus. Say yes to his payment for your sins on the cross. Say yes to his resurrection from the dead. 
Say yes to Him offering to pay with that blood for all your sin. To make you righteous and to bring you into glory. Say yes to Him. Lord, I pray for your church, God. I pray that you would make us a faithful and a holy people, Lord. God, let us go forth from this place with more, more of a seriousness to fight sin and to obey your commandments, not in our own strength, Lord, but in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless. You're dismissed.